The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. This morning in our study of the Gospel of John, we come to chapter 17. Chapter 17 is the prayer that Yeshua prays to His Father. Now, this chapter has had a special place to me since I was a young Christian. <clears throat> I remember many years ago, I was a youth pastor at a local church, and the pastor had asked me to uh, pick up a missionary that was coming into town from the airport. So I said, okay, I can do that. Well, that morning I had, uh, in my Bible reading, was reading the Upper Room Discourse that ends with this chapter. And uh, just had a great time of devotion, so I picked this missionary up, and I didn't know, I've never met him before, you know, so we pick him up, we start doing some small talk, and somehow I got to share with him, you know, talking about John 17, and uh, he just chimed in, and we just had this incredible time of fellowship together over this chapter. That just stands out, you know, you click with somebody when you know that they they just have this deep love for the Lord, and, a, and an honor for His Word, and i tell you the truth, that was a little odd for a missionary. Um, <laughs> I know that's hard to believe, but, but he just really had a love for the Lord. So we had a, just had a great time, and that's kind of stuck out in my mind over the years. This chapter is just, like I said, it's an incredible chapter. In the 5th century, Clement of Alexander remarked that in this prayer, Yeshua was acting as a high priest on behalf of his people. And from the time of David Chetrius, which was around... 1530 to 1600, this chapter has commonly been referred to as Yeshua's high priestly prayer. And I'm sure you've heard that at some point in time. As Yeshua's instruction to His disciples in the upper room comes to a close, He turns to the Father in prayer. He prays for Himself and as the intercessor on behalf of His disciples. Now in the Old Covenant, it was the high priest who offered the bloody sacrifice to Yahweh on His sacred altar, and whose responsibility was to serve the covenant people as God's representative and the people's intercessor. Now in the new covenant order, it is Yeshua Himself who is offering both the sacrifice of His passion and death and His intercession on behalf of His disciples to God the Father. And that's why this prayer has come to be known as Yeshua's high priestly prayer. We know from the Gospels that Yeshua prayed a lot. I mean, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that prayer was important to Him. Mark tells us, and rising very early in the morning. Okay, you want some examples on how to pray? Get up really early. Okay? <laughs> just kidding. You can pray early. You can pray late. It doesn't matter. It just, the Lord rose very early while it was still dark and departed and went out to a desolate place and there He prayed. When he was about to select the original twelve apostles, Luke tells us, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, he is our example. We are to follow his example. And I just want you to understand that to him, prayer was important. But in most cases in the Scripture, we're not told what he prayed. We have a few short sentences here and there For example, at the grave of Lazarus, he prayed, Lazarus, come out. There you go. That's a good prayer, right? 
Whenever I pray a short prayer, people are like, wow, that was awful quick. When you're praying for food, just thanks and go on, okay? It's not time to pray for missionaries or all your, all your family. People are waiting to eat, okay? <laughs> At Gethsemane, he prayed, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Now they're just short sentence. Then at the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. But for the most part, we don't know what the Lord said in prayer until we get to John 17. And then we just get this incredible view of the Son talking to the Father in this prayer. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, we have the prayer that Yeshua taught His disciples to pray, which has been falsely called the Lord's Prayer. People, Matthew 6 is not the Lord's Prayer. You know why it's not? He never prayed that. He couldn't pray that. Why can't He pray that prayer? Forgive us this day our trespasses. He can't pray that. He doesn't have any trespasses. He doesn't have any sins. That was a model prayer. That was a prayer that He taught us to pray. Not something that He ever prayed. That's the disciples' prayer. That's a pattern for prayer. John 17 is in fact the Lord's prayer. This is the prayer that the Lord is praying. Not an example that He's teaching others how to pray, but the way this is Him praying to His Father. Warren Wearsby writes this, Whether He prayed in the upper room or en route to the garden, this much is sure. Now, He says that because you know at the end of chapter 14, it says, rise, let us go from here. So many people think that they got up and left the upper room. I'm not one who thinks that. I think they stayed there. I think you know, maybe they moved from the table or something, but I think they were still there. You'll see as we get to you know, the beginning of 18, it's like then they're actually leaving. But that's not the point, all right? And that's what Wearsby is saying here. He says, it is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the Gospel record. And we must approach this chapter in the spirit of humility and worship. He's talking about, you know, this is important because here is our Lord praying to His Father. This is communication, people, within the Trinity. Philip Melanchthon, who was a co-reformer with Martin Luther, said this of John 17, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime, than the prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. And John Brown of Edinburgh, while expounding on this chapter in the 19th century, said this, all that is peculiar and wonderful in Christianity is here. Now, one thing I think that's important about this prayer, you'll notice that this prayer was intended to be overheard. Okay? You know, the Lord often went off to a desolate place, off to a mountain, off to... And here, He is praying right with His disciples right there. They're present. They're in just a very short time. They're about to experience utter devastation as their Lord hangs on the cross. So it was meant to be heard by them. It was meant to be an encouragement to them. But you know what? It's also meant to be overheard by us centuries later. So we, like them, can be encouraged and instructed by it. You know, the Lord pray, says, I don't really pray for you, but I pray for those who are going to believe because of your word. That's us. So in this prayer, He's praying for us. That's kind of cool. I like that. This prayer in John 17 is the longest prayer of our Lord in the New Testament. And it's found only in the Gospel of John. 
Now this chapter kind of easily divides itself into three simple sections. The first five verses, Christ is praying to the Father for Himself. And the theme of glory dominates these first five verses. Yeshua requests the Father to glorify Him with the glory they shared in eternity. And then verses 6-19, through we have Christ praying for the disciples. The theme here is kept. Yeshua asks the Father to preserve His disciples. Then for verses 20-26, to we have Christ praying for us. Future believers. His church. And the theme here is unity. And this is really interesting. This is going to be powerful when we get there, people. But Yeshua desires for those in His church to be in oneness with each other. Alright? So let's start looking at this prayer. Verse 1. When Yeshua had spoken these things, He lifted up His eyes to heaven, and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Now, these opening words, when Yeshua had spoken these words, that these words are the upper room discourse. This links, chapter 17, this prayer, to the farewell discourse. Now, we've talked about this before, about the fact that the last discourse has many of the characteristics of a farewell speech. A literary form frequently used in the Bible and in intertestamental Jewish literature. Often the farewell speech concluded with a prayer. So this being your typical farewell speech concludes with a prayer. The book of Deuteronomy is said by some to be an extended farewell speech. In Deuteronomy 32 and 33, Moses brings the speech to a closing climax by prayer. All right, then he says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Looking into heaven with arms raised is the traditional Jewish position in prayer. We see this in the psalm, Psalm 123, to you I lift my eyes. He's saying, I pray to you, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. I'm lifting my eyes in prayer. In Matthew 14, 19, it says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he's getting ready to pray for dinner, he looked up to heaven and he said, A blessing. So the Lord looks up to heaven and prays. Now, according to the parable in Luke 18 about the tax collector, he didn't feel worthy to lift up his eyes, the text says. Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't feel worthy to lift his eyes, so he didn't even lift them up. Now, believers, let me ask you this. Does the Bible mention Yeshua or anyone else closing their eyes in prayer? Anybody know the answer to that? Huh? Does it? I just think it's interesting. You won't find anywhere in the Bible about anybody closing their eyes in prayer, Yeshua or anybody else. So, why do we do that? I mean, that's like, if you don't close your eyes in prayer, that's almost sacrilegious, you know, like, he had his eyes open. Why do we do that? Is it just tradition? Why? Why? Anybody got any ideas? I I think that's probably the main reason we do it, to avoid distractions. You know, we close our eyes so we can focus. If you can keep your eyes open and focus, that's cool. You can do that too, you know. Um, If you go through, yeah, the kind of bowing your head, closing your eyes, kind of, you know, prostrating ourselves before God, I'm definitely not saying there's anything wrong with closing your eyes, okay? Not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, if you go through the Scriptures, you see all kinds of postures in prayer. You can pray in a fish if you want, you know. 
Jonah did that. I mean, you, you can pray all kinds of places and all kinds of posture. It's the attitude of the heart that matters in prayer, not what you're doing on the outside. Sometimes people go into these great postures just to kind of, you know, look spiritual, whatever. All right? Okay, so he lifts his eyes and he says, Father. So let me ask you this. Who's Yeshua praying to? He's praying to his Father, Yahweh. Now, a man wrote me last week and asked me this. He says, I have a question. In John 17, Jesus, Yeshua, is praying to his Father. Correct. Is it your understanding that the Father is Yahweh? Yes. Now, Jehovah, you've got to strike that word from your vocabulary. That is not a biblical word. That is not, you know, J's were not even invented until the 17th century. Jehovah, you know, J is not, the Lord God is never called Jehovah. It's Yahweh, all right? So then he asked this. If so, then is Jesus praying to himself? Well, no. I don't know what the point of that would be. You know, I mean, some people talk to themselves. Yeah, I guess that, but he's not praying to himself. This is, what we're seeing here is the inner workings of the Trinity, all right? The doctrine of the Trinity states that there is one God who is in essence or substance, but there are three personalities. This does not mean three independent gods existing in one, but three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, inseparable, interdependent, and eternally united to one absolute divine essence and being. Is that hard to wrap your head around? Yeah, I know it is, okay? But it's God. Don't think if you could understand Him, you know. Now, in this prayer, Yeshua, who is Yahweh, is praying to the Father, who is Yahweh. So the Son prays to the Father, both of whom are Yahweh. See, people who don't believe in the Trinity, they have a lot of trouble with this, okay? If there is no Trinity, then who is He praying to? Himself? Uh, I don't know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So, it's important, people, that we understand that. You know, we call God our Father when we pray. You know, do that. That's kind of common for us now. It's common now, 2,000 years later. But in the Tanakh, the term Father with reference to God is used about 14 times and never of any individual addressing the Father or God as His own Father. See, they didn't have that concept. So when the Lord came and said, after this manner pray ye, our Father who is in heaven. That was something new. That was something striking. They would have been astonished to hear that they're able to address Yahweh as their Father. And here the Lord talks to His Father. He says, the hour has come. Now this Gospel, if you've been paying attention for the last, I don't know how many years we've been doing this, a while, refers to Yeshua's hour 17 times in this Gospel. In the first half of the Gospel, which is called the Book of Signs, okay, that, you should be able to remember that. It's all about miracles, first 12 chapters, okay? The seven miracles, the seven signs that prove His deity. The hour is anticipated as the moment of climax in Yeshua's ministry. In the second half of the Gospel, which is called the Book of Glory, after entering Jerusalem for the last time, Yeshua speaks of His hour as being eminent. And we understand that His hour is not only the climax of His ministry, it's the climax of His earthly life. This is the last time the hour is mentioned in John's Gospel. Because in a few hours, the hour will come to pass. 
It was the hour of the fulfillment of the divine design. When before the foundation of the world, God ordained that Christ be crucified as an effective sacrifice for sin. It was the hour of the cross. Now in the redemptive drama, everything is under a divine timetable. Everything is by divine appointment. And people, the cross shows God's supreme sovereignty. The Jewish leaders didn't want to crucify Yeshua during Passover. Because they were feared to riot, you know, from the crowd if they did it during Passover. But when was he crucified? On Passover. Why? Because that's when God wanted it done. Because he was the Passover lamb who took away the sin of the world. The cross shows that God is sovereign over all things, including the so-called free will of sinners. So then Yeshua get praying to the Father and hears His prayer. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Now Yeshua doesn't say glorify Me. He will say that in verse 5. But here He says glorify Your Son because the term the Son is a messianic term. Now, you might look at this and say, well, doesn't that sound kind of selfish? Lord, here's my prayer. Glorify me. No, it's not selfish coming from Him. Listen, because this prayer is grounded in the basic unity between Himself and His Father. If Christ is glorified, the Father is glorified. Automatically. This recalls the teaching that we went through in chapter 5. Look at He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. When Christ seeks His own glory, He's seeking the glory of the Father. Only when Christ is glorified is the Father glorified. They're one. They're glorified together. Look at John 13, 31 and 32. When He had gone out, Yeshua said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Son of man glorified, God's glorified. God will also be glorified in Himself and glorify Him at once. So when the Son's glorified, the Father's glorified. So when He says glorify your Son, glorify me that you can be glorified. Now, how is the Son to be glorified? What's He praying about here? It's the cross. The glory is in Yeshua's sacrificial death that leads to the resurrection, that leads to the ascension. It is then the Son glorifies the Father through His obedience, and the Father glorifies the Son in accepting the sacrificial death as the atonement for the sins of man. Glorify the Son that the Son may also glorify you means enable me to successfully complete the mediatorial work on the cross, the resurrection and the ascension, as a result of that, you'll be glorified as well. Now, doesn't it strike you as a little strange that Christ is praying, Lord, glorify me. In other words, let this cross be accomplished. Let the resurrection happen. Let me be ascended. That you'll be glorified. He's praying for this. Why? Does he doubt it's going to happen? D.A. Carson has some insightful comments here. He says this, that God's appointed hour has arrived does not strike Jesus as an excuse for resigned fatalism, but for prayer. 
precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified, he prays that the glorification might take place. This is God's appointed hour. Let God's will be done. Indeed, Jesus prays that his Father will accomplish the purpose of this appointed hour. As so often in Scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not a disincentive. Now, see, that might be hard for us to wrap our heads around because people argue, well, if God's sovereign, why do this? Why evangelize? Or why pray? Or why do anything? Here's the Lord praying for something that He knows is going to happen because this was foreordained before the foundation of the earth. To glorify God is to display His perfect attributes so that others will marvel at who He is. It means to make Him look good as He truly is by declaring His attributes. Listen, people, nothing glorifies God like the cross. Now you may be thinking, how in the world could torture, could a violent death display God's attributes? You know, the cross was an obscenity in that day. In in polite Roman culture, you didn't mention the cross. It wasn't like today, they didn't have little crosses hung around their neck. That would be vulgar to them. That'd be like us today, taking an electric chair and hanging it around our neck, put a little chain, have an electric chair, you know? Or have something like that, because to them it was an obscenity. It was horrible, because it was a violent, horrible death, and it was the power of Rome. But the cross showed how seriously God regards sin. It showed the intensity of God's opposition and anger towards all rebellion. And it showed God's love for the elect. Here's how much I love you. I'm going to butcher my son for your sake. Verse 2 says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh, and given eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now there are three uses of the Greek word didomai in this verse. Give. All referring to the idea of giving something as a gift. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh, that's the first use, to give eternal life, the second use, to all whom you have given, the third use. So Yeshua has been given absolute authority, therefore He has the power to give eternal life, and the Father has given a certain people to the Son to give life to. Three gifts. Let's look at the first one. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh... God the Father gave the Son authority or absolute power over humanity. We see this in Matthew 28, 18. Yeshua came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We see it in Ephesians 1.22. And He put all things under His feet. Speaking of Christ. And He gave Him as head over all things to the church. Now, why does the Son have to be given authority? I mean, isn't it His by virtue of being God? Yeah, it is. But the point is, to, this here is something specific. The Father gave Yeshua sovereign authority over mankind on the basis of the Son's obedience and His humiliation, death, and resurrection. So by virtue of His authority over all mankind, He has authority to give eternal life. Now, Yeshua said this earlier, back in John 10, 27, 28. He says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them, and they follow Me, And I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. People, this is a claim to deity. Okay? Who gives eternal life? God. 
Notice it doesn't say these people have earned eternal life. It's a gift, okay? I've given them this. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. As Paul said in Romans 4, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's through His grace. And he says He's done this to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Please notice that it doesn't say that He gives eternal life to all who believe in Him. The text doesn't say that. That'd be true. But here it says that He gives eternal life to all whom you have given Me. And you've got to stop there and you've got to read that and focus on that for a minute. So who are the given? Who has the Father given to Yeshua? He gives eternal life to all whom you've given me. So there's a group, the given, that are getting eternal life. <clears throat> this is important because the given, all of them get eternal life. And listen, only the given get eternal life. Notice what Yeshua said earlier about this given. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, earlier in this chapter, just two verses up, Yeshua connected coming to Him and believing in Him. This is important because what He's saying here, all that the Father gives me will believe in me. We could translate it that way. Look at uh, verse 35. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Alright? What I want you to see here is that coming to Yeshua and believing in Yeshua are synonymous concepts. These are parallel terms. Coming to Christ, same as believing in Him. Vice versa. It's important to understand because he's saying, again, all that the Father gives me will believe in me. So since coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonyms, who believes in Christ? All that the Father gives. Hmm. The Father has to give someone the ability to believe on Yeshua. So to believe in God requires divine enablement. Oh man, the world hates that today. They want autonomy. They want, I just do this because I do. I believe. I chose to believe. You chose to believe because God enabled you to believe. He gave you the gift of life. These are all the people whom the Father gives to the Son as gifts. He gives a gift to the Son. I don't think we understand that concept. Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace, not man's choice. Now, those of you who hold to the Arminian view, the order here is crucial. All who the Father gives me will come to me. Yeshua doesn't say that all who come to me will then be given to the Father. No, you have to be given before you come. We don't determine by our response who will be the Father's gift to the Son? Rather, our response is determined by prior election of God. The word gives here is a word of destiny. It's divine, sovereign election. The concept of the elect being a love gift from the Father to the Son is taught throughout the Scriptures. See, people think, well, Christ died hoping someone would believe in Him. No, He died knowing that he was obtaining a gift from the Father through that death. A certain people. Look at Isaiah 1.18. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me. 
So, again, the concept of given. Now, who's speaking here? Well, the epistle to the Hebrew quotes these words as the words of Yeshua. Look at Hebrews 2.13. And again, I will put my trust in Him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, speaking of Isaiah 8.18, the IVP Bible background commentary states this. These are not the words of the prophet, speaking of himself, and it's, and it's natural children, nor is it no, his spiritual children, his disciples, called sometimes the sons of the prophets, but of Christ, who has a seed, a spiritual offspring who are given him of God in the covenant of grace. So he's speaking of Christ here, and his offspring, his children. Listen, people, here's what we have to understand. The Scriptures represent the Father as promising the Son a certain reward for His suffering on behalf of sinners. See, if, if believing in Christ and coming to Christ is just all up to man, then Christ could have died and nobody ever believed in Him. His death could have been in vain. It could have been worthless because nobody came. But that wasn't what, how it was going to be. His death was efficacious for the people He died for. Look at Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him, speaking of Christ. He has put him to grief. When my soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Amen. Amen. It says, He shall see His offspring. This is a reference to the elect of God. God has given the elect to Christ. We are children of promise. Notice that it says, He shall see and be satisfied. Not frustrated. God is not up in heaven wringing His hands, Oh, I wish they would trust me. I've done everything I could do. I wish they would trust me. No. He is satisfied. His plan is working. So Yeshua doesn't give eternal life to all without exception. He only gives eternal life to the given. Now one commentator writes this, This phrase should not be understood as the Father giving some humans to Jesus and not others. Yes, it should! That's the only thing it does mean! I'm like, you're scratching my head thinking, really? He gives eternal life to all who is given, but it doesn't mean that, Okay? See, people don't like this. That's exactly what it means. The Lord Yeshua has sovereign authority to give life, and He gives it to those whom the Father has given Him. This is one of the clearest statements on what the Bible calls limited atonement. And people don't like that, so they've changed it to particular redemption. That's okay. It says the same thing, just maybe a little softer. All right. This is one of the five points of Calvinism known as tulip. All right, now listen. I know we don't like labels sometimes because they can be confusing, but Calvinism is a label that it just is, okay? I'm a Calvinist. Now, that doesn't mean I believe everything Calvin wrote or taught. Calvin taught something called temporary faith, which I think Calvin lost his temporary mind for a bit when he taught that, okay? I mean, he literally taught you can believe for a while and then stop. And I'm like, so you have eternal life for a while and then you quit? I, I didn't, you know. But for the most part, 
Calvin's Institute, I think, you know, he's, a, he's most balanced to me of all the Reformers, the best writer of all the Reformers. That's just my personal opinion. But we've come up with TULIP to explain the five points of Calvinism, right? What's the T stand for? Total depravity. This doesn't mean that everybody's as bad as they could possibly be. That means man is separated from God. And there's nothing he can do about it. He's depraved. He's dead in trespasses and sins. What's the U stand for? Unconditional election. Hmm. What's that tell us about election? <laughs> it's unconditional. That makes sense, right? That means, in other words, God didn't look and say, look at what a great person they are. I'm going to choose them. Well, that would be conditional election. That'd be, they're nice, I'm going to choose them. No, unconditional. That's got nothing to do with you. It's about God, okay? What's the L stand for? This is the one people hate. Limited atonement. What? The atonement wasn't for everybody? No, it was for the given. It was for the elect. That's what the atonement was for. What's the I for? Irresistible grace. Hmm, what do you think that means? It means you can't resist grace. <laughs> because when God moves in your heart, He changes your heart. Now, it's not like irresistible grace means God's dragging you into heaven. You're like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Please stop. No. I mean, that's how non-Calvinists view irresistible grace, okay? Irresistible grace is God changing your heart. And so you want Him. Because before that, you don't want Him. You don't care about Him. You don't care less about God. He changes you. He gives, takes out the stony heart and He gives you a heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, I'm interested in the things of God. All right, how about the P? Perseverance of the saints. Now, this is translated a couple different ways. Some say this means that, you know, the saints will keep on going on their own strength, basically. I think perseverance of the saints is the same as, uh, you know, security, eternal security. You're going to persevere because you are in the sun. There's no way of getting out of this, okay? So those, you know... And these were basically, these five points were a response to Arminian, Arminianism and their five points, all right? So I just think it's a, you know, people play with them, try to make them more palatable today, but this is just the truth, people. I think this is what the Bible teaches, all right? So limited atonement. Limited atonement deals with the issue of for whom did Christ die? And most people believe today he died. For everybody. Did he die for everybody or did he die just for the elect? Now, here's what we have to understand. understand. Election is not enough to save us by itself. See, let's God just looked and he said, I'm going to pick out a bunch of people. These are mine. That couldn't be the end of it, all right? Because there's a matter of divine justice. We've sinned. We've violated God's holiness. And that holiness, God's justice, has to be satisfied. God can't merely take sinners into His fellowship. I like you. Come on, I'm just going to let you slide. Come in the back door, okay? Okay, because you can't come in the front door. You're a sinner, but I'm going to let you in because I like you. No. Sin must be dealt with. It has to be punished. That's the heart of the Gospel. Christ came in the place of sinners and offered a sacrifice to God for their sins. In Christ's own words, he says this, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 11. People, please understand this. Christ died to pay your sin debt. 
And what that means is when you get to heaven, listen to me, you have a right to be there. You have a right to be there. You belong there because your sins are paid in full, in Christ. That's incredible. But my sin debt's paid. I'm not walking in with my head hanging down. Oh, I know I don't. Yeah, I do deserve. I'm in Christ. And I'm as righteous as Christ because I have His righteousness because my righteousness wouldn't get me anywhere, okay? So I have the righteousness of Christ. Because of His death was in their place, we go free. We're righteous. They are punished. We were punished, people. Our sin was punished in Christ. He's our substitute. That's the whole essence of the Gospel. That's the hallmark of Christianity. He died for us. It's for this reason that we say further that Christ died with the intention of saving His elect. He gave His life for His sheep. Again, John 10, 11. Now, to be sure, the value of Christ's person and work is infinite. No doubt about that. The death, therefore, was entirely sufficient to atone for all the sins of all men who ever lived. But it wasn't designed to do that. We know this very simply because not all are saved. His mission, as he defined it, was to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given him. Christ died not merely to make possible the salvation of all mankind, but to make certain the salvation of all that the Father had given him. If Christ died for every man, then guess what? Every man would be saved. It's universalism. We don't believe that. Look at John 10. But you do not believe. Jesus is talking to the Jews here. All right? He tells them, You don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. What? Because you don't belong to me. Listen, my sheep. They hear my voice. Why do they hear it? Because God opens their heart. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me, there again, this given thing, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The ultimate reason they did not believe in Yeshua was because they were not His sheep. To many who are Arminian, in their soteriology, this is offensive. They just view it as like, God is rude. How can He do this? How can God just choose who gets saved? He's God! He gets to do stuff like that. Yeshua was telling His listeners, these Jewish believers, that He had not called them. They had not been given to Him by the Father. They did not belong to His flock, so their unbelief was no surprise. And the reality is this, people. You cannot come to God unless God calls you. He was emphasizing their inability to believe. And listen, he's talking to unbelievers and he said, you guys can't come. You think that ticked them off? I mean, read John chapter 6. It's amazing. Over and over he talks about this being given and you can't come if you're not given. And basically, he's telling these Jews. And then he gets to the end and he goes, I'll tell you what, guys, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, oh, he's like doing everything he can to chase them away because they're not his sheep. We do the exact opposite today. 
We do everything we can to get people in. Have little shows, give away food, give away drink, do whatever to get them in. You should, that's not how you should evangelize. He said, you guys, you don't believe them. That's because you're not my sheep. People don't do that today, that's for sure. Believers, the New Testament clearly teaches that Christ bore the sins of many, not all. The essential issue here concerns the nature of atonement. Yeshua's atonement involved both expiation and propitiation. Expiation, Christ removed our sins. Propitiation, satisfaction before God. If Christ bore in His body on the tree the sins of all men without exception, nobody would ever perish. But Christ's atonement was only for the elect. It was limited. That's where we get this limited atonement from. And it's my conviction, as I said, that these five points of Calvinism are biblical, and they're the true gospel. I'm not pushing this because I like this system. I was Arminian before. I like being Arminian. I'm the one who chose God. Pretty smart. You're a dummy. You should have chosen him too. It, it gives you pride. When you find out that this is true, it crushes you. Well, God didn't choose me because I'm so special? Because I'm wonderful? Because He needed me? No. He chose you because He's God. You know, the church today, and I think Calvinism is the true gospel, but the church today is being flooded with a new gospel. It's a humanistic gospel. See, the gospel is always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment. It's a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord who man depends for all good, both in nature and grace. Its center of reference is God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. You choose. You decide. You initiate salvation. The chief aim of the gospel was not to, was to teach man to worship God. But the concern of the new gospel is limited to making people feel better. Our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption which does less than redeem. And if Christ is a Savior who does less than save, and if God's love has a weak affection which cannot keep anyone from perishing without their help, and if faith is a human help which God needs for His purpose, this is not the Gospel, people. The Gospel is God saves sinners. That's the good news, people. God saves sinners. He does it all, beginning to end. Now, the use of given here points to an act by the Father that has a distinction and a permanency to it. He uses the Greek perfect tense to distinguish the giving. This this verb is a perfect active indicative which speaks of an enduring gift. The Father's gift to the Son is a gift of people who were redeemed and sanctified and be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, someone's bound to say, well, I think that even those who aren't given can still come if they want to, right? Because the Bible says, whosoever will may come, right? It does say that. What does that mean? If you will, come on. Guess what? You're not going to will unless God fixes your will, okay? That's simple, people. You know, you don't come unless God does something. But if you will, come on. It's not like he's saying, I really want to be saved, but God won't let me. No. 
If you want to be saved, it's because God's already done something in your heart. But look at what the Bible teaches about this. John 6.65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted. So nobody comes. You can't come if you're not given. And guess what? If you are given, you're going to come. Okay? 6.37, all the Father gives me will come to me. Then verse 39 says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You know what that says? All the given are risen. Every one of them. So no man can come, except they're given, and all the given will come, and furthermore, to the given, not a single one of them shall be lost. This, my friend, is what's called an ironclad argument. Okay? It just is. It just is. Believers, it is my opinion that this gospel, this fourth gospel, should be the death of Arminianism. I mean, it just should be. How can you know this book? How can you understand this book and not hold to Calvinistic soteriology? It's everywhere. It's not Calvinism, it's Bibleism. It's just what it teaches. I had a friend who was a preacher. I tried to share Calvinism with him, share this perspective. He was like, he argued with me. He would get so mad. You know, it just was not fair for God. Or this, you know, come up with all the dumb arguments people come up with, you know. He just fought it. Well, he was a preacher. And he decided to do a study on the Gospel of John, verse by verse. He didn't get too far before he called me and said, guess what? I said, you're Calvinist. He said, yeah, how'd you know? I said, you're teaching the Gospel of John. No brainer, man. You, you can't be honest and get too far in that Gospel without seeing everywhere you look that God is sovereign over man. Salvation, every aspect of man. So, I mean, I'm not sure how... People who hold to an Arminian faith get over some of these verses. I guess I, I like to find some Arminians that I trust and see, see how they interpret, to see what they deal with. You know, this is, this is strong language, people. Very strong language. If you're a believer, it's because God gave you to Christ. And He gave you to Christ because He chose you, and He chose you before the foundation of the world. He wrote your name down before the foundation of the world. Now, what's interesting is that if you use the King James Version, it's different in ESV, but in the King James, seven times, this chapter refers to believers as those whom the Father had given to the Son. Now, you know seven is the number of completion, the number of totality, you know, and I think that's interesting. And the, well, there's a couple, you know, textual problems here where they argue about which text is correct, and we'll look at those and we'll get to them. But let's move on, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua, the Christ, whom you have sent. Now, knowing here, the idea of knowing God is a Semitic thought. And in a biblical context, it doesn't merely result of intellectual process or acquired information. It's to have an intimate, personal knowledge that results in a covenantal relationship. The word know is a present tense verb. And it means our knowledge of Him continues and continues. He's referring to a personal, intimate relationship with the living God that grows as time passes on. He doesn't mean that we know about God. 
It's rather we know God. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a subjective experience grounded in an objective truth concerning God. This knowing of God was the promise of the new covenant. Back in Jeremiah, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know Yahweh. See, in the old covenant, within the old covenant community, they were constantly trying to encourage one to know the Lord because a lot of people in that community didn't know the Lord. They were born into the community. They never trusted Christ. They didn't know God. But they had to do that. But he says, they're not going to have to do that in the new covenant. They're not going to say, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquities, I will remember their sin no more. See, in the new covenant community, you don't, you're not born in the new covenant community. You're born again into the new covenant community. So everybody in the new covenant community knows God. Now, if you study the gospel, this gospel of John, and the first letter of John in depth, you're going to notice that eternal life is inseparably linked to Christ Yeshua. There's no way to have eternal life apart from Him. This verse is the last of nine times in the Gospel of John that records Yeshua speaking about eternal life. Without exception, eternal life in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels and the rest of the Bible, eternal life is always referring to eternity in heaven with God. Heaven is where God is. Eternal life is being with God. That's eternal life. All right? It's not just you get life for a long time. No, you get life in the presence of God. He says the only true God. Now, Yeshua describes the Father here as the only true God. This doesn't mean that Yeshua was acknowledging that the Father was God and that He, Yeshua, was not God. Unitarians believe that. Rather, it means that Yeshua was acknowledging that there's only one true God. Now, you say, really? One true God? Does this this go against the divine counsel viewpoint? No. There's many other lesser deities, but they were all created by and subject to Yahweh. Yahweh is the supreme God, we could say. And that's what this slogan means. To say that Yahweh is the only God. You'll read that many times throughout the Tanakh. That's an ancient biblical slogan of incomparability and sovereignty. Not exclusivity of existence. It is always a way of saying a certain authority was the most powerful compared to all other authorities. It doesn't mean there's no other authorities that existed. And it's used that way throughout the Tanakh. You'll see it. Babylon is called the great city, the only city. What? The only city? No, because it's superior. That's what they're trying to say. All right. Yeshua the Christ. This is interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament where the Lord called himself Yeshua the Christ. Verse 4 says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. So, <laughs> he says, I've glorified you. I did what you asked me to do. I'm done. Really? What about the cross? We didn't get there yet, right? Well, this is what's called, he's referring to it proleptically. All right? Proleptically means to describe an event that is not yet past as though it already were. And we see this many times in the New Testament. He can speak proleptically as if the work was already completed because his hour is going to happen, all right? Like I said, it's foreordained before the foundation of the earth. He's going to die. He knows it's happened. I've glorified you on the earth. And he did glorify him on the earth. He lived in obedience to the Father, did what the Father wanted him to do, said what the Father wanted him to say. Having accomplished all the work, he's 
Again, in a few hours, he's going to the cross, and this will be over. And in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, now that I've done all you asked me to do, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As I said in 17.1, Yeshua prays for the Father to glorify Him, and now He repeats the request and defines the glory for which He prays more specifically as the glory that He had before the Incarnation. See, this request presupposes Yeshua's pre-existence with the Father and His equality with the Father. I want, I want the glory that I had! As the pre-incarnate Son of God, Yeshua was united to the glory with the Most Holy Trinity before the world was created. This is John 1, 1-3. Look at Philippians. This is an incredible passage because Paul uses this text. This is some of the deepest theology you'll find in Scripture. This is the doctrine of the kenosis, the self-emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Talked about the hypostatic union. Talks about the God-man. This is deep theology, but most people believe this was a Christian hymn. That's the kind of hymns we need to sing, okay? Sons that teach us. But the, the amazing thing to me is Paul uses this theology as an example. Here's what Christ did. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He put others before himself. You put others before yourself. He says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The word but here is contrastive, you understand. Not this, but this. The word emptied is the Greek word kanao, which we get the doctrine of the kenosis. It means to make empty. Christ emptied Himself when He became a man. What did He empty Himself of? You know, a lot of people say He emptied Himself of His deity. What if He did that? Can God change? Then how would He empty Himself of His deity? He would cease to exist. He is deity. He can't do that. Some people say that He emptied Himself of the attributes of deity. Can He do that? Again, God can't change. He can't take away some of His attributes. I'll stop having wrath. I'll stop having justice. No, no. Yes, please stop those, but keep love. We want you to hang on to the attribute of love. No, He can't surrender any of His divine attributes. Okay? What He emptied Himself of was glory. He laid aside the prerogatives of deity and walked this earth as a man. But here in John 5, we know what he emptied himself of because he says, I want the glory back, the glory that I had before the world existed. He's asking the Father to reverse the self-emptying that came about in His incarnation to restore Him to the glory that He shared with the Father from all eternity. I want the glory back, Lord. I want to be back with you in heaven. Full glory. Now, let's close here on a really practical note. I want you to notice again that Yeshua is praying here for something that He knows is going to happen. No doubt in His mind. He's God. Okay? He knows what's about to happen. He knows there's no way in the earth to stop it. All right? People often say, well, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then why pray? Or if you believe in the sovereignty of God, why evangelize? Well, we pray because we realize that it's prayer that is the divinely directed means for the accomplishment of certain goals. 
And here's our Lord praying for something we know is going to happen. You know, we pray for all kinds of things, right? Number one being health. God, we want to feel better. I don't find the Lord doing that, but we pray for that. We, sometimes we pray for wisdom. That's a spiritual prayer. Lord, I want wisdom, right? We pray, pray for financial problems. We pray for all kinds of things, and I guess that's okay. But notice here, Yeshua's prayer is primarily concerned with the Father's will. That's His prayer. He prays that what He knows about the Father and His purposes will be accomplished. God, I want Your will to be done. Sovereignty and prayer are not mutually exclusive, people. We need to follow Yeshua's example in prayer. If He prayed, it's got to be important. And He prayed for things He knew were going to come past. And He prayed for the will of the Father. You know, if really, if that was our prayer, I think we'd see more answers to our prayer life. Lord, I just pray that Your will would be done. Whatever, whatever. But usually we're praying... I don't really care what your will is, Lord. Can you do this for me here? Because I'm not in a good spot. And it's like trying to twist God's arm to get something then different than what He's already ordained to get. You know, if we go along with His will, life is a whole lot easier. But I just think it's pretty amazing that Yeshua, knowing what He knows, prays, God, let's bring this about. Let's bring it. I'm going to the cross. You know, He knew it was going to be the most painful, excruciating death experienced by mankind. But he did it because there was a joy set before him. You know what that joy was? It was you. It was the given. See, he knew, when I do this, I'm going to get a people because of my sacrifice. He didn't go in there saying, man, I sure hope somebody trusts me. I sure hope I'm not dying in vain. No. He died for his people. He died for the given. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the clarity of it. I pray, Lord, that You'd give us the heart of Bereans. We'd be able to put aside preconceived notions of this or that. Just allow the Scripture to say what it says. Help us deal with it, Lord, whether we like it or not. Help us to line up in our worship and our submission of You. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen.